LinkedIn presents. There's a lot of things to get better with age. And we just haven't done a very good job of helping people to see what those are. And Becca Levy at Yale has shown that when a person actually shifts their mindset on aging from negative to positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. Having age-diverse teams means that young brains, which tend to be fast and focused, and older brains, which tend to be slower but more synthetic and be able to see sort of the future and think more systemically, having those together on a team is a good thing. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Chip Conley. Chip is the founder of the Modern Elder Academy, an author with a new book, Fresh on the Press, out this month, January of 2024, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. I am thrilled to welcome you to the premiere episode of the 11th season of the Redefining Work podcast. Yes, 11. I had to check myself on that, but it is true. This is season 11. And this is also a special season for the podcast because starting with this episode, the Redefining Work podcast is now proud to be in the home of the LinkedIn podcast network. That's right. Redefining Work is now part of the LinkedIn podcast network. And I'm really thrilled to join a roster of incredible podcasts, incredible stories and storytellers, and hope to add to that lineup that they have built. So I am really thrilled to bring to you this episode and this conversation with Chip. We get into why midlife is the Rodney Dangerfield of life stages, advice for people who may be encountering ageism in the workplace, and all about his new book, Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And we'll be right back to that conversation right now. People have always been the key to unlocking business performance. Never has that been more true than today. I'm Lars Schmidt, and this is the Redefining Work Podcast. In each episode, we speak with business leaders who are influencing modern work and people practices. This podcast is your key to understanding the link between business performance and progressive people strategies. And if you're a people leader wanting to have an impact on your business, I encourage you to join our community for progressive people leaders at amplifytalent.com slash community. This community is unlike anything you've experienced before. Want more direct insight? Here are some words from community members, Chloe Sesta Jacobs, Noah Warder, and Balbina Knight. The caliber of humans that I have met in this group is like nothing I've experienced before. It is truly the safest community I've ever been a part of. One of the things I love so much about the Amplify community is having the opportunity to connect with a global group of peers. And if you're a business leader on the market for a transformative people leader, be sure to check out our HR executive search services at amplifytalent.com. Now, on to the show. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining Work podcast. We are kicking off season 11. How has it been 11 seasons? 
I don't know, this time has flown, but I'm so thrilled to kick off this conversation and our first episode as a part of the LinkedIn Podcast Network with Chip Conley. If you don't know Chip, you should, and I'm glad you're going to know him after this episode. He is the founder of the Modern Elder Academy. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's got an amazing background, but he also has a new upcoming book titled Learning to Love Midlife, 12 Reasons Why Life Gets Better with Age. And we're going to talk about all of that. But Chip, let's just kick things off. You know, For the audience who, uh, who may not be familiar with you, what should they know about you? How would you like to introduce yourself? First of all, it's an honor to be here, Lars. Thank you. I started a company called Joie de Vivre in San Francisco, uh, a boutique hotel company in the mid-1980s. I was 26 years old, didn't know what the heck I was doing. But I ran that company for 24 years, grew it to 3,500 employees, 52 boutique hotels. We were the second biggest boutique hotel here in the U.S., and I learned a lot about leadership and a lot about culture and our HR during that time. Uh, I sold the company. It's now a, a Hyatt brand. Uh, many years ago, I sold it. And then a couple years later, the three founders of Airbnb came knocking on my door. They were a small tech startup that was ready to disrupt the hospitality business. And they asked if I could join them as their in-house mentor and help them to take a tech startup and turn it into a hospitality brand globally. I did that for four years and then three and a half years full-time and then three and a half years as a part-time strategic advisor. And I think I learned a lot. I'll, I'll come back to this, but I'd, I'd love to talk about age diversity in the workplace and the intergenerational collaboration opportunity. But I learned so much during that time that I wanted to write a book about it. And I wrote a book called Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, because they called me the modern elder there. They said, Chip, and I didn't, at first I was like, oh, wait a minute, you're making fun of my age because I'm twice the age of the average person here. But they said to me, Chip, you know, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. So it's a compliment. It's like, oh, I get it. I like that. The alchemy of curiosity and wisdom. That sounds good to me. So long story short is I was writing my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder here in Baja on the beachfront where I have a home. And I had a Baja Aha one day, which was uh, like an epiphany. Why don't we have midlife wisdom schools? And that's how MEA, the Modern Elder Academy, came about. And we have now, we have a campus in here in Baja with 4,000 people from 44 countries who've come to it. And then we have a campus opening in April in Santa Fe, New Mexico, a 2,600-acre uh, regenerative horse ranch with two retreat centers there. So yeah, that's, and I've written a bunch of books and I've done three big TED Talks and, you know, that's my life. I actually have a lot more life to that than just my career, that's for sure. But we're not going to go into that right now. I'd love to explore all of it, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to keep us on track on time. You know, you refer to middle age as the Rodney Dangerfield of <laughs> life stages, which when I read that, you know, I'm a, a person of a certain age. I'm, you know, from Gen X here because I, I grew up with Rodney. D. I, I remember <laughs> yeah. the comedy, but also the distinctive voice for uh, all of you, you know, youths out there watching this episode. You may be like, Rodney who? Go to YouTube, visit Rodney Dangerfield, you'll get it immediately. But tell me more about what you mean by that, the, the yeah. Rodney Dangerfield of life stages. Well, he was famous and he's definitely, he was sort of an old, both of us were a little young for him. I'm 63 now, I'm a boomer, but he still was a little bit, you know, a demographic slightly older than me in terms of who his audience was. But he famously said, I don't get no respect. And he was talking about, as a comedian, I don't get no respect. And I believe that midlife is the life stage that don't get no respect. And so that's why I see it as that. And I think midlife is a, a complicated life stage. It is one that doesn't really have exact borders or boundaries. Some sociologists now say it lasts from 35 to 75, which is a marathon. 
But it's really, in many ways, a stage of life, even more than an age of life. Just like adolescence is this bridge between childhood and adulthood, midlife is sort of the bridge between the first half of your adult life and the second half of your adult life, and or the last, the latter part of your adult life. And so I've, I've been fascinated by it, partly because I've been living it. <laughs> and I've had both the best of times and the worst of times in midlife. And we're very, we know famously midlife crisis, and I now call it the midlife chrysalis because it's actually a time where there can be some serious transformation. Well, what, you know, was there a particular moment for you in your journey when you began to think about this midlife period in a different way and thinking about the, you know, what it means to be an elder in a different way? Like, is that, was that just kind of a, a slow evolution or was there a marked moment where yeah. that kind of set you on this path? That market moment was during my Airbnb time. So you remember if I, I started a boutique hotel company at 26, so I was no modern elder, that's for sure. And I ran that for 24 years and I was the boss and I, I really learned what it meant to create a company and a culture and you know I, I loved it. And until I didn't, the last two years I was running the company, I just didn't want to do it anymore. And it was during the Great Recession and uh, I was going through my midlife crisis or midlife chrysalis and I got to the other side of it. But I really noted like this, there's some stuff going on here and there's actually some social science research, which was not out at that time called the U curve of happiness. And it shows that between about age 22 and 25, people's life satisfaction starts to decline consistently until about 45 to 50 when it bottoms out. And then with each decade after age 50, we get happier and happier. So I was like, okay, note to self, <laughs> midlife is a complicated time. And then my fifties were the best decade of my life. And what I learned about midlife in the context of Airbnb was, huh, I've joined Airbnb. I am helping to be the mentor to the three founders. I'm helping them steer their rocket ship and turn it into a hospitality company. I'm the head of global hospitality and strategy. And yet, I'm also mentoring this, the founders, but I'm reporting to Brian. So Brian Chesky is still the CEO there and one of the co-founders. And he was, at the time I joined, 31 and I was 52. So I'm reporting to someone who's 21 years younger than me, who I'm, men I'm mentoring. That's an interesting dynamic. And the U.S. Department of Labor shows that by the year 2025, the majority of Americans will have a younger boss. So I think it's a real opportunity for us to understand what's it, what it's like to have five generations in the workplace for the very first time. And with many of us reporting to people who are younger than us. So how do we make that work? And I, to me, midlife often is a period where it's sort of like the bridge between younger and older people in the workplace. I also think midlife is a time where we start to realize, and, and if we're getting good at our career, we're starting to get really clear on what our gift or mastery is. And I think that's a really important piece of it. I, I, you know, by the time you're in your 40s, you can start to see exactly what it is that you have as a gift. And if you can articulate that and get very clear about what that is, it allows you to be better at finding a job because you can say, this is in two words, what I do well. But also once you're in a company, getting clear on what value you can offer. It was a fascinating journey because having been a CEO for my own company for 24 years to actually be in, in a, a very fast growing company where I was not the CEO. And yet in many ways I was the CEO whisperer. I was whispering to Brian how to, he could become a great leader. So long story short is I, I learned an awful lot from that experience at Airbnb. And if I could say one last thought on that, it's just that we 
desperately need to consider age as a demographic metric that's as important as gender or race or sexual orientation. Because we've historically, as a society, not seen this to be a metric for diversity. And in fact, as of five years ago, only 8% of Fortune 1000 companies actually used age as a demographic metric to look at diversity. So I think it needs to be one. I want to kind of stick with that theme for a minute because, uh, you know, the this you mentioned five generations in the workplace today for a range of reasons. You know, generations are staying in the workforce longer, delaying retirement. People are reinventing themselves, starting new careers in middle age, which is fantastic. The topic of ageism is, as you mentioned, kind of the ways, the layers through which we think about diversity. I mean, ageism in the workforce you know, is also something that we are encountering. And I would love to just get your thoughts. Like, obviously, this is a space that you study, you spend a lot of time here. What are your current views on ageism in the workplace? Well, it is a thing. I mean, there's a ton of research on this with AARP sort of being the leader on the research. You know, we have ageism in society. I mean, how do you know it? We have anti-aging creams and products. It's a $650 billion a year anti-aging industrial complex. The process of aging is perceived as a negative. The process of growing is not perceived as a negative. So in your teen years, if you're growing, you are aging, but no one says you're aging. You're just growing. At some point in our life, in adulthood, we move from growing to aging. And that's really based upon the physical side of things. But the fact is that we are growing our whole lives until we die. And it may not be on the physical side as much, except for my gut. <laughs> my gut is growing. It's a little bit bigger than it used to be. You know, you're growing emotionally. Our emotional intelligence grows with age. Our wisdom grows with age. Our emotional moderation, the ability to be less reactive, grows with age. Our relational intelligence, how we get along with others, grows with age. Although your cranky uncle doesn't count. Your ability to look at things sort of systemically and holistically grows with age. Arthur Brooks wrote about that in his book, From Strength to Strength, about crystallized intelligence. And he actually wrote about, in that book, our modern elder academy, MEA, as a place where people learn this. So long story short is there's a lot of things to get better with age. And we just haven't done a very good job of helping people to see what those are. And Becca Levy at Yale has shown that when a person actually shifts their mindset on aging from negative to positive, they gain seven and a half years of additional life. So that's huge. And finally, just with teams, having age diverse teams means that young brains, which tend to be fast and focused, and older brains, which tend to be slower, but more synthetic and be able to see sort of the future and think more systemically, having those together on a team is a good thing. Yeah. When you shared the Yale professor, Dr. Becca Leva's research on reframing how we think about aging in our brain, adding seven and a half years of light. I'll be honest, when I read that, I had to like sit back in my chair and just ponder it for a moment. I had to let that kind of set in my head because you think about it, you go back to the industry around, you know, the anti-aging industrial complex. What seems like as simple as a mindset shift from aging to growth, as we think about our later years, you know, that simple shift unlocks seven and a half years of additional life. 
I mean, this is something that I feel more people need to know and understand. Uh, how do we kind of spread more awareness <laughs> well, of this? Well, let's, as a comparison, if you stop smoking at age 50, you gain about four years of life. If you start exercising at 50, you gain about three years of life. So you actually gave, gain more life by changing your mindset on aging than stopping smoking and starting exercising combined. So we have all kinds of PSAs, public service announcements, for stopping smoking and starting exercising. But we don't have PSAs that are pro-aging messages, partly because it's perceived like, why would anybody want to have a pro-aging message? Well, MEA and my book are really about that. It's about helping people to see what gets better with age. Because yes, there's all things, there's all kinds of stuff that gets worse with age. I, I, want to, I don't want anybody to think I'm Pollyanna talking about, oh, it just gets better. But there are a bunch of things that get better with age. And there are, when, it, when we take this in the context of companies and HR departments, there are a bunch of myths. And I wrote about these myths in um, my book, Wisdom at Work, The Making of a Modern Elder, about older workers. Yes, they may not be quite as adept at technology on average. But if you have an older worker who's curious and passionately engaged and wants to learn, gosh, you know, go for that person because they're actually more likely to stay in the workplace. They're three to four times more loyal to an employer in, the, in their 50s than someone in their 20s or 30s. There is the, you know, the idea that older workers are more expensive. Well, you know, a lot of people's uh, salaries plateau around age 50. And for some older workers who want to stay in the workplace a long time, they're willing to take less money because they actually have some money in the bank. They're less competitive, feeling competitive about their salary necessarily. And I got to tell you, for you HR folks out there, which is a lot of you, if you have an employee you love and they seem like they're overpaid and they're 55 years old, maybe even ask them, are you open to going to 80% time instead of 100% time, taking a 20% cut in pay, but we will size down your workload by 20%. And there are, I'd say about half of people at that age are going to say, yes, <laughs> I was, I didn't know how to bring it up to you, but I'd like to phase out over the course of 10 years and go from five days to four days to three days. And maybe at some point, two days even, because as we get older, we, that's actually what a lot of people want. They don't want to leave the workplace, but they actually don't want to be quite as fully invested time-wise as they were when they were younger. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. 
I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I mean, and that's, I think it's an important lesson. There, there's ways that we, we, in HR, we have to get out of these kind of binary ways that we look at some of these challenges that, that, that it's, you know, it has to be one way or another. There's a lot of gray where we need to operate and it like creates a lot of opportunities. I think when we don't kind of look rigidly around just headcount and org design and even role structure, but I want to get into your new book. I love origin stories and I love getting a sense of like where these ideas came from. And obviously you're a published author. This is not your first book, but walk me through, take me back in time. Like when was the moment that you knew that you needed to write a book about learning to love midlife? You know, I, the origin story was like my fifties being at Airbnb and then saying, I got to write this book, Wisdom at Work. And I wrote the book and that led me to creating MEA, Modern Elder Academy. Over the course of my time in running MEA with, again, 4,000 people coming from all over the world, from 44 countries to come to our little campus in Baja, California um, on the beach, I just started to make notes about what I was learning along the way. And then I created a blog, a daily blog that I created four years ago. Um, called Wisdom Well. Um, you can actually find it on the MEA website, uh, meawisdom.com. And um, as I was writing these you know, daily blogs, I mean, first of all, writing a daily blog is a big commitment. And I was just finding like, wow, I really enjoy making sense of what I'm learning because actually that's really what wisdom is. Wisdom is metabolizing your experience. I like to say painful life, your painful life lessons are the raw material for your future wisdom. So I was doing these daily blogs and my publisher of my last book said to me, like, I love your blogs. W would you consider taking all of that and turning it into a book, celebrating, the, the, you know, first of all, focusing on midlife. So we say <laughs> learning to love midlife means learning to love something means you don't necessarily lo love it initially. And midlife is sort of one of those things where if crisis is the number one word attached to the brand of midlife, it's like, okay, who wants a crisis? And so we learn to love Brussels sprouts as we get older. We learn to love classical music. We learn to love a lot of things. So learning to love midlife was the title. But what I really said to my publishers, I said, I really want to help people to understand this pro-aging message, this idea that there are a bunch of reasons. And in my case, I came up with 12 reasons why life gets better with age because so many of us are used to the idea and we get a Hallmark card for our 50th birthday that is pretty much a taunt. <laughs> <It's>, you know, <laughs> They're never positive. You're right. You're like, still like, hey, way to go. <laughs> Congratulations on making it to 50. It, it's all downhill from here. And so I, I really wanted to sort of, you know, I'm a, a natural born rebel who likes to try things that haven't been done before. And so, yeah, I said, okay, let's go with a pro-aging message and really take Becca Levy's point of view to the mainstream and help people to see what gets better with age. So that's really how the book came about. And I think it's very relevant to companies. We have a lot of companies who are buying books, you know, like bulk buy of books 
especially for their ERGs, the employee resource groups that are either intergenerational or older groups, to help them to understand if you have a great resource in your company of people in their 40s, 50s, or even 60s, how do you help them to feel relevant? How do you help them to feel like they can mine their wisdom and make it uh, very valuable in the company? Because often we sort of feel like... we put all of our learning and development resources into the youngsters who who are joining the company in the 20s. And we sort of forget that there's these people who have institutional wisdom in the company. And when they decide to leave because they feel neglected, you're losing some of your, your brand value and your internal wisdom when they leave on a Friday afternoon and are never coming back. I'm sure you've worked with and advise a range of companies that have ERGs or other programs that that intentionally tap into that wisdom and share it. Yeah. What does a great practice look like? Like when you think of maybe a company does that really well, how, how do they do it? So there's lots and I've been fortunate enough to give speeches to all kinds of companies, whether it's, you know, in person or it's been online. A few key things. Number one is uh, mutual mentorship. This is an opportunity for HR. I happen to be doing mutual mentorship. I had over, I, in my seven and a half years at Airbnb, I had over a hundred mentees. So if you have all that many mentees, are I the only one has wisdom? No, I learned as much from them as they did from me. Often the, the mentorship was I offered EQ, emotional intelligence, and they offered DQ, digital intelligence. And we were both better off for it. So how do you create a matchmaking system such that often it's older and younger together learning from each other? So it's not mentorship or reverse mentorship. It's the combination of both. Secondly, on your employee satisfaction surveys, like work climate surveys, ask the following question because it's really, really fascinating what comes from it. Ask the question, beyond your boss, who do you look to for advice or wisdom? And the reason that's an important question is because it starts to open up your eyes to who is an informal mentor in the organization. And that's where the wisdom rests. So at Airbnb, when we did this, we had about a thousand employees the first time we did this. And we, in essence, created a wisdom heat map of the company. Here's where the wisdom is sort of stored in the company. And it wasn't just older people. And we also noticed that it was more women than men, partly because they were more accessible and more open to, you know, being a mentor or informal mentor. And long story short is it helped us to see like, wow, what are the qualities and characteristics of those people who are at the top of this list? And that helped us to look at how we did our training and our, you know, learning and development for people throughout the company. And we even took three or four people who were on that list and said, like, what if we made them a halftime coach, trained them to be a coach, and then actually had them do this in a more formal way? And at least two or three of them actually said, yes, that's a great thing. ERGs, that are especially intergenerational ones, are, are really valuable as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do in my book, Wisdom at Work. The Making of a Modern Elder, Chapter 9, has 10 specific ideas for what companies can do to create a a more intergenerational workforce. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the examples and another reason for the audience to get both books. Yeah. So you can have some tangible takeaways. I know it's not fair to you talk about, you know, 12 reasons why we should love midlife. And it's absolutely not fair for anybody to ask you, like, what is your favorite of the 12 reasons? (laughs) Yet... I'm still going to ask you that question because I'm curious and it doesn't have to be favorite meaning you're weighing one over the others, but like of the 12, does one resonate with you the most personally? Well, one that resonates to me very much in the last few years is I understand my life story and my personal narrative. So 
that's the, it's the longest chapter in the book. And it really speaks to this idea of the hero's journey, something that Joseph Campbell was quite famous for, which helps people to understand that there's times in your life when you're going through, you're learning a lot of lessons. And so, you know, when you read a novel, when you're about a quarter of the way through the novel, you understand some of the themes, but you don't necessarily understand the full through line or the overall storyline. Similarly, a quarter of the way through your life, you may not understand your through line or the pattern recognition of what's happened. By midway through your life, you can see some pattern recognition. You can see some of your shadow side. You can see some of the way your habits and you understand how you fall into (laughs) the same patterns over and over again. And therefore, as Carl Jung, the famous psychologist, talked about, you know, the more we can actually elevate and bring the unconscious to the conscious, the more control we have over it. So a quality of what gets better with life is to be able to see your life with objectivity, almost like your best friend can see your life and give you some feedback. What if you can do that for yourself? Be a first class noticer of your own life. And that is something we get better at if we are willing to invest the time on reflection and maybe even resource tools with a coach or psychologist or uh, reading self-help books or coming to MEA and doing a workshop. So why is that valuable, especially in the workplace? When somebody understands their shadow, they understand what they do well, what they don't do well, what patterns they tend to show up with. Man, are they a better employee to work with because they're not carrying around all their baggage and spewing it on people and excuse that very graphic visual. And so I think it's both good for the midlifer, but it's also great for companies because that person is much more self-aware. I want to tap into that wisdom of yours in, in a scenario, right? I'm sure some of the people you know watching or listening right now are themselves in midlife and maybe they are at, at a low point in midlife. Maybe they are struggling with thoughts of, you know, mortality and legacy and, and, and impact. And maybe they're on the receiving end of, of ageism as a, a job seeker and a candidate. Um, but for whatever reason, they're at a low point of that cycle. What advice do you have for them? You're, you're, they're sitting across from you right now. They're kind of sharing where they are. Um, how do you recommend helping them kind of maybe reframe their life circumstances right now? Well, one of the things I would start with, and this is actually the first reason in the book, is how do you help them understand how much life they still have ahead of themselves? We are not very good at longevity literacy. And what is longevity literacy? It's being able to understand, based upon actuarial tables, how much life you still have ahead. So let me use an example. In the United States, and by the way, in the United States, uh, longevity has been declining. And we are different than the rest of the Western world. It's crazy, and that there's a lot of reasons for that. But if the averages show that a man lives till age 76 in the U.S., and you're 65, that doesn't mean you're going to die in 11 years on average. No. Actually, if you're, if you're already to 65, you're likely to live till 83, So you don't have 11 years left on average, you have 18 years left. And if you're someone even asking this question and focusing on it, you probably have even more life ahead of you because you're probably actually focused on your health and your wellness. So we have more life ahead of us than we think. The average age of the people who come to MEA is 54, but actually one sixth of them have been millennials, which is really interesting. But 54 is the average age they're going to, they think they're going to live till is 90. 54 is exactly halfway between 18 and 90. So you're really only halfway through your adult life at 54, which 
when you say that to someone at 54, they're like, oh, really? Wow. And then the next question I would ask them is, what is it that you know now or you've done now that you wish you'd known or done 10 years ago? Get that in your mind. All right. Now, more important question is, 10 years from now, what will you regret if you don't learn it or do it now? And the reason that's a great question to ask after you've done that little literacy test, longevity literacy test, is because if you realize that you have maybe 36 years ahead of you, why not learn how to surf at age 57 as I did or learn Spanish at age 57 as I did? Because I actually asked myself, like at 67, it would not be any easier to surf or learn Spanish. Probably it'd be harder. So it gave me the incentive because if you think about anticipated regret, but 10 years from now, I'll regret that. That is a form of wisdom because you can, you're actually seeing out in the future and saying, how will I change my behavior based upon that? That is a form of wisdom. You're seeing the patterns of your life. And so that's what I would say. You know, that's part of the work we do at MEA. It's we help create a crucible for people to have life-changing conversations that not just reframe their relationship with aging, but actually repurpose themselves in a new way. Chip, I, I love that feedback, and hopefully, I'm sure the scenario that I presented is going to ring true to some of you out there in the audience, and I hope that Chip's words help you maybe bring some new perspective to where you are and what's ahead. So Chip, if the audience wants to learn more about your new book or the Modern Elder Academy, where should they go? Where can you point them? Chip Conley, C-O-N-L-E-Y dot com, and you'll see both the book there as well as my past books, as well as my blog. You'll also find the blog on the Modern Elder Academy website, MEA, which is meawisdom.com. And I'm very active on LinkedIn. So every one of my personal blog posts, I put up on my LinkedIn profile. So you're welcome to look for me at Chip Conley on LinkedIn. I like a centralized hub. You've got it all. <laughs> Chip, I'm going to leave you with one last question as we're wrapping up. What is bringing you joy lately? Oh my God. Well, joy is a very important feeling and emotion for me because I named a company Joie de Vivre, uh, which means joy of life. You know, my sons on a totally different subject, my sons are 11 and eight and I'm an older dad and I love them. I just deeply love them. And they're right at that age where I feel like my influence is really important in their lives right now. So I'd say that's what's bringing me joy. I have two daughters about two years behind yours, so I can relate and uh, those words ring true to me. So yeah. Chip, thanks so much for coming on. Congratulations on the book. Definitely want to get your hands on this one. And thanks for all of the work that you're doing in this industry to reframe how we think about aging and the opportunities ahead of all of us. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of LinkedIn Presents Redefining Work. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, and more, be sure to check out our website at amplifytalent.com slash redefining dash work. And if you want to connect with me directly, you can find me on my website at LarsSchmidt.com or feel free to post on social using the hashtag redefining work and I will find you. And if you dig this podcast, I'd love for you to share it with your peers and your friends and help them discover it. And if you really dig this podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcast delivery your ears prefer. I'll see you next week.